more than anything, I am a space fundamentalist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me is my co-host, Alan. On the first... Heyo! <laughs> nice. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we're going to be talking about media portrayal of trauma and suffering, and for our segment, we're going to introduce a new one called... And we'll we'll give context as we go this, but it's called Your Fundy is Showing, and we're going to express areas of our life outside of our Christian faith that we are still very much fundamentalists in. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that. It'll be a nice palate cleanser after I think the conversation we're going to have. We had this conversation planned before the unfortunate events in Florida recently um, to talk about how the media portrays suffering and trauma. So obviously it makes this conversation a little bit more relevant and gives us a current framework to, to look at how these things are being portrayed and all that kind of stuff. So Alan, why don't you introduce how this conversation came to be something that you wanted to talk about on the show? Cause this is a, something that Alan uh, proposed that I thought was a great idea. Some years ago, I came across the book regarding the pain of others by Susan Sontag. It was recommended to me. She's a photographer and philosopher who's pretty known in the art world at least um and she wrote a book that kind of delves into the portrayal of suffering and how it gets co-opted and used and and the nature of viewing pain in general and it blew my mind up i loved the book this is like 2015 maybe then later on i started reading a book called the body in pain the making and the unmaking of the world by forgive me elaine scary or scary I once heard, don't make fun of someone when they don't know how to pronounce a word because it means they read it in a book, right? Yeah, very much. I'm guilty of that (laughs) all the time. That means you're an intelligent person. You read it in a book and nobody had to tell you it. Uh, Anyway, her book is fascinating. I'm not all the way done with the body and pain, but the initial chapters on the nature of pain are incredible. I really like to invest myself in empathy just by the nature of my personality. It means a lot to me. It's a big part of my job. And I remember I was just thinking about this yesterday in an earlier episode, we talked about what our superpowers would be. And my superpower would be, uh, being able to feel what other people feel or make them feel what I'm feeling. I was right? just thinking about that <laughs> so as you were talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the alien episode. I love that episode. But yeah, the empathy means a lot to me. And so does the nature of our media means a lot to me too. And so the intersection of these two big ideas, how our public life is constructed, how we interact with that, and then also pain and empathy, it's an intersection that's really fascinating to me. So I figure for this topic, I could talk a little bit about the nature of pain in general, especially through Elaine's book. I'm going to say her first name. Sorry about that. Talk about the nature of pain in general and then talk about uh, consuming media portrayals of pain. I mean, who hasn't seen on their Facebook feed like a video pop up of a shooting or a disaster or um, a war-torn area or refugees fleeing somewhere. This happens all the time, right? We see it. It's inundating our world and bringing a little bit of consciousness to how do we view that stuff and how does it affect us and how does it get used uh, is more than appropriate. I think it's it's something we need and it's something I need. 
So, and we have, you know, countless historical images that are burned in our brain of like Tiffany yes. Square and all that kind of stuff that those images that that stay with us for for decades. Right. One that stood with me is there's this little girl in Vietnam and there's a picture of her crying in the middle of the road with her hands outstretched. And I think she's like naked or something. And it's just like there's so much just pain and obscenity in that one photo that you just want to turn away from it. Right. And so there, there's different reasons we can get into that in a second. There's different reasons for viewing this kind of stuff. Um, and then lastly, I'm hoping to talk about empathy and mirroring, like what, what constructive stuff can we do when we're faced with pain and when we're faced with suffering. So that's the general layout. And uh, I, let's start with the, the nature of pain in general. So my favorite quote of all in uh, the body and pain book is this to know pain is to know certainty to hear about pain is to know doubt. And what that means is when you're in pain, you know, one thing for sure. One thing is true in the whole world that you're in pain, right? I mean, you stub your toe or something and you're like, that's the brute fact of your existence in front of your face. Like, you know, you're in pain. Uh, pain is just, undeniably real for the person who feels it. And there is no greater gulf between you and another person than their inner experience. So no matter how empathetic I am, Jeff, I will never know what your pain is like, right? I'm not your body. Your body is is a different planet from mine, completely opposite, right? And so you are in some senses, absolutely and utterly alone in reporting what you feel. I cannot feel what you feel. In some ways, we might be able to measure what's going on in your brain with imaging scans and stuff like that. But ultimately, your experience of your pain is your own and nobody can feel it for you. So it's at the same time, the most certain thing in your life. And for other people, they have to rely on your self-reporting of it. So hearing about someone else's pain introduces doubt whether you like it or not. It's just the nature of hearing about someone else's pain. I think about the... uh Scrubs episode. Otherwise, <laughs> it just popped into my brain. God, I love Scrubs so much. <laughs> it's something I can come back to. Uh, JD is prescribing pain pills to this patient, right? And uh, his mentor, Dr. Cox, is like, that guy's a drug addict. He doesn't actually need that pain. And there's that whole like conversation about, you know, do you believe the person who's in pain? Do you not? Um, there's fascinating studies. Just as a side note, uh, there are people of color and especially women are less believed about their pain in general. Did you see studies about stuff like that? I've heard it's about them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, anyway, so you're relying on, uh, reporting of pain and how, and how we even talk about our own pain is, um, an evolving science. Like there used to be a time when we didn't have the chart, you know, the chart when you go into the hospital from one to 10 and there's like a happy face at one and, a really anguished face all the way on 10 and you have to say what, what number you are. And then you talk about what kind of pain you have. You have to rely on language like, Oh, it's stabbing pain or it's burning pain or it's dull or it's sharp or it's this or that. Like language itself is, it's just limited to, to explain our experiences. So connecting to other people's pain immediately has all of these, this gulf between you and the person who's experiencing it. And so a lot of the injustice in the world and a lot of maybe the, the the ignorant ways that we move around is based on that gulf, and it just amplifies some of those problems. Well, and I think it's also important to 
to make a differentiation. Like we can talk about pain, like stubbing our toe or hurting our arm or even emotional pain, like a breakup or something like that. And then contrast that to like trauma, trauma that affects us in a way that, you know, like if I tell you a story about how I stubbed my toe, I can tell that story in a narrative function. I can tell that story with a certain amount of disconnect because it's not a pain that then becomes a part of who I am. And something that that becomes replayed in the way that I move and breathe throughout my life. Like uh, there's a study. Let me, let me jump on that, dude. Before you move on, that is actually super good. That's a good way of saying something that I wanted to bring up at some point is that language transforms the nature of our pain and pain itself robs us of language. Uh, exactly. Like- uh, so, Elaine, Elaine Scarry would say that it, it robs us of the of the world. It shrinks the world. It increases our body. And part of the world is like our civilization and our language structures and stuff. And that gets decreased in pain. Right. And there's this uh, uh, book that I that I've read recently uh, called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's by a neurologist who is doing brain studies about how people deal particular with trauma and how it's not a. It's not an event that passes. When when we talk about trauma and deep pain, it it itself is not a narrative. It is something that then shapes your entire narrative going forward. So you can't talk about trauma in terms of a beginning, middle, and end where it's been resolved. They did a study where they took people who had experienced some kind of trauma and they asked them to describe a comforting memory. And the way that they described it was a narrative form, beginning, middle, end, and they talked about it in terms of of story. But when they were asked to describe a traumatic event, they talked about it in terms of sensations, sight, hearing. So it was as every time they retold that or ex- re-experienced that, then they would they would literally be there in their physical body. Their physical body would express and feel the same things that they did in that traumatic moment. So I think it's important when we talk about as as we as we lay the f- foundation for when we talk about trauma is that for many people trauma is something that is relived over and over and over again because it literally it literally like disconnects the rational part of your brain. It is something you feel and a lot of the forms of therapy that are out there that try to help us rationalize our past experience are somewhat ineffective if they're not grouped with something that's more holistic, that kind of eases and calms those physical things that happen as a result of the pain that we experience. To put that in a philosophical rendering and not just the the, the neurological scientific like understanding of it, um, Elaine would say that pain unmakes the world for you. We even have terms like blinding pain, right? When you're in pain, it's hard to notice kind of what's going on outside of that pain. So it's basically destroying the world for you to the point where you're just your body. Though, like you said, rather than narrative and story, your sensations. You have be- your body has become massive, and your world has become small. And you see this with people who are in pain in their old age, like in my in my ministry, their worlds shrink, you know, to, to to their recliner, to the things that are around them. Rather than projecting themselves out into the world, the world is becoming dimmer and dimmer and smaller and smaller when they're in this kind of pain. Right, and not only that, it becomes smaller. The world becomes hostile. Because you, everything has the potential to re-experience another way or an even worse pain than your original one. So, uh, in the, in the con- context of torture, even the the extensions of ourselves in society they they get weaponized. Civilization itself gets weaponized. So, a, a building a building is just an extension of your body. Like the walls, they're supposed to regulate temperature and keep out foreign objects. That's what your skin does, right? 
It's just an extension of yourself into a larger space. So that's what civilization does. That's what architecture does and art. And you get further and further and further out with these, uh, these levels of human, you know, experience and civilization and extension. Language is a massive importance in that because you really extend yourself with your language. And so for some of the older people, like language becomes their stories and their tellings and their ability to speak are their way of, ex- you know, extending themselves out in the world. That's why elders are a really important function in society. When it comes to torture um, or even war or things like that, civilization itself can be used against yourself in creating pain, you know, slamming your head against a refrigerator. This is part of the book of The Body and Pain. It talks about war, torture, uh, pain and memory, like kind of all these different topics that surround um, suffering. And it's like for the – like you're saying, for the older person, even the elements of civilization civilization itself can – become weaponized or become potential places that cause pain which makes in like even just the very definition when we talk about pain and trauma which makes things like get over it or it's in the past irrelevant statements to anyone that's going through pain because first of all trauma is not in the past it is constant not irrelevant but violent pain causing itself so uh the, the the person okay the torturer the the regime who uses torture and the United States has used torture in the past. We've waterboarded people and said it was totally okay under the Bush administration. The, the, the regime who uses pain creates this sensation for this person that is undeniably real, right? Like pain is just undeniably real. It's, it's, it's a brute fact of existence that through the magic of politics and regime power that transfers some of the reality of that pain to the regime that's using it. So for, for the regime or for the torturer, their world is so massive that it's uh, their disconnect from the body is acute and their world is so massive that when they torture someone, it gives reality to their larger world. So in the person who is telling you to get over it, you know how pain makes your world small and your body is just true, like your body is the reality because you're, you're experiencing all this pain. The person who tells you to get over it, they're saying that their world is true you know like the whatever's happening outside of all that pain that's what the real reality is and so they're 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 causing some of that violence i'm not saying it's a torture or something but you can see how like there's a, an inverse relationship between world and body and pain and how sometimes that stuff gets co-opted by people without even understanding it or realizing you're doing it or maybe on purpose like in war and torture and things like that right it, it disconnects people's experiences from their context and that is horribly dangerous and counterproductive to any kind of connection or health of, of a group of people, whether it's a, whether it's a family or a church or, or a nation. Yeah. And uh, uh, Susan Sontag said, you look at pictures of bombed out cities, right? And I, I'm thinking of, of, of homes, of uh, Syria, right? I'm thinking of all the bombings and stuff. And you see these pictures of people spilling into the 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 streets, refugees, and there's just bombed out homes everywhere. And like, you can say those are, you know, the, the, the factions that bombed them are destroying Syrian architecture, or you can say like they're destroying Syrian homes, you know, sheared off buildings and stuff like that. Looking at images of that is like looking at sheared off bodies, looking at pictures of, cause that's extensions of who we are. And so rather than being completely removed from it and saying, oh, this is a concept, like, no, that's somebody's home, you know? So maybe now it's time to talk about consuming media portrayal. The most insidious thing about looking at pain through certain mediums is that it actually 
secures the distance between us and the person in pain in, in a, in a not obvious way. When we come to an image and we see people suffering, it obscures the realities that are involved. When you take a picture or you film something, when you frame something, this is what Susan Sontag says. When you frame something, you're obscuring things. You're choosing to leave some things out, right? You're taking a picture. You're purposefully leaving certain things out. And when we come to these images and these stories and stuff, especially when we don't know the people involved, uh, th there are things that there are realities that are left out that create even more of a distance from us and create a false we. Every single one of us look at look at the shooting in in Florida or another awful video or or portrait, and we all have the same gut reaction at first, right? Like a little bit of shame, a lot of shock. Like this is awful. This is not something that's right. Like it's affecting me on a very visceral level, and it creates a false we. We all think we're reacting the same way, right? That's that's the that's the trick that happens, but it's not true whatsoever. Uh, Sontag points out that in the early 20th century, there was this one photographer who was taking pictures of these hollowed out soldiers. That's the term she use, uses, hollowed out soldiers, their faces up close. You can look at it online and they're self-portraits of the people who have like lost eyes and, you know, they're disfigured by these horrible world wars. And when they were first taken, they were intended by the, the photographer to point out the, the absurdity and horrors of war. They got used several generations later as fodder for patriotism, as like, uh, look at these people who suffered for the good. And it gives me the strength to go be a soldier and be a patriot and to suffer like they did. So completely the opposite points being made. One is criticizing the machine. One is supporting it, you know? And so there's a false we that's created when – and she says this. This is a quote. The illustrative function of photographs – leaves opinions, prejudices, fantasies, misinformation untouched. We think we're being moved when we look at those videos, but sometimes it's just entrenching us. It's just entrenching me into me believing that I am innocent and I have a lot of distance between me and whoever's perpetrated this or distance between this thing and me. Usually this happens in a different country, right? We're like, oh, that country, it's supposed to happen over there. It's not supposed to happen here. But it leaves all of those things happening inside of us untouched. So it's a little bit disingenuous to think that showing violent imagery is going to actually produce change in us because a lot of times it does the exact very opposite. I think I think less the opposite and more what it does. It just brings out what's already inside. Like it's a reflection of who we already are, which I think is the, the function of any kind of art, right? Like your interpretation that you impose on it, the things that it brings out in you, the, the the visual nature of it is just a reflection of what's already in there. Because I'm of two minds of this, like all the things that you're saying is is a good point. But it 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 feels like you're left with the conclusion of, well then should we even take pictures of these things? Should we even have right. things that bring up those things? Which I don't think is the answer either. So I think I think it's more uh, She says this to, to it, answer what you're just saying. But there is shame as well as shock in looking at the close up of a real horror. Perhaps the only people with the right to look at images of suffering is saying perhaps she's not making a claim. Perhaps the only people with the right to look at images of suffering of this extreme order are those who could do something to alleviate it. The rest of us are voyeurs, whether or not we mean to be. I don't know. I think that might be a little bit over cynical while I agree with elements of it, because I think it's more of 
our choice in how we consume those things. Like if we view it as a window into who we are, then it can it can be a road towards self-reflection and how we can better approach pain and suffering from the rest of the world that we're so disconnected from. I agree with art, but how but like videos and pictures of of victims it's hard to call that art for me, you know, like art is supposed to to bring out these things that are in us. Right. And 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 give us that kind of self-reflection sort of stuff. Right. But actual documentation of suffering. Do you call that art? <laughs> you know, like, is it well in the sense that it visually is something that we connect. It is it is connecting us to something visually that we are not otherwise connected to at all. And I think that it is it is in the same vein of art because it is. It is devoid of us actually experiencing it and is only connected through the way that we respond. So, again, it's a reflection of who we are or it brings out something of who we are in there. And I don't – I think it's difficult because then I think when we're talking about the images and the video themselves, we cannot have that discussion without then also connecting it to the agenda and the motivations behind the people that are presenting those images. Absolutely. The context and the way they present it. But because for us, the context, our context is money. Our context is advertising. Like what 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 news is going to be brought to you? They call it a culture of spectacle, right? Right. It's supposed to be the spectacle to get clicks and do this kind of stuff. So there's lots of layers that are attached to it for sure. Ultimately, though, even the person who filmed it, like they don't even get a say in what how it gets used you know like that's post that's postmodernism, and it gets well they do but not in the avenue in which it's presented right like right what but but even in the way it's used in the person who's viewing like they don't get to get to determine that um and that's kind of what you're saying in response to art it's a mirroring of ourselves it's something that we're looking at in ourselves what what are some of the reasons for viewing material like that I'll, i'll just say i'll just say this right now i've i've had and i guess i i wouldn't call it like um, an inappropriate fascination, but I've watched a lot of riot videos because they fascinate me. Like the, 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 the idea of a riot happening is like, just m- makes me curious. And so I watch it. Right. And there's always the same thing that happens with riots. There's the same couple individuals that do certain actions that cause the whole group to do this. There's a couple individuals who try to stop the rioting and they're always in danger and they should just flee. That's like my one thing that I've. And so when I come to those, um, videos part of it is like curiosity part of it is uh preparing myself or stealing myself for life like what would i do in that situation you know like that's a part of the human impulse to look at stuff like that what are some of the other reasons that we look at 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 suffering do we actually really want to alleviate alleviate the suffering and be a part of an answer to it or like or is that something that we're just telling ourselves i don't know there's those kinds of questions for motivations come into it as well how you approach imagery yeah i don't know like i I think that's a good question just for my own personal experience i i tend to avoid that kind of imagery at all costs i remember uh, in the early 2000s when uh they caught when they caught saddam hussein and i was still a youth pastor in in an evangelical church at the time and i remember like almost a not from everyone and not even from the majority but there it was a present feeling but almost like a glee like Yes. Uh, 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 or even when they announced that Osama bin Laden. But I think the the Saddam. I know what image you're thinking of right now, too. I think the Saddam, Saddam Hussein, Hussein is, is into my brain. much more. And I, I couldn't. I never watched it. I've never seen the video where they because they hung him. Right. I think 
Um, and the video Either was hung or shot. Yeah. I, I never saw the video, but I do have a picture because they posted a picture on all the news sites, the same one of him, of him and this crowd around him and stuff like, yeah, it's burned into my brain. Yeah. And, th- and that, that, that's why I keep going back to that idea of reflection because I, I don't understand the idea of having any kind of glee towards anyone, any kind of death or violence in that way where you literally watch someone's life being taken from them. Right. And, uh, and, and that, so that's what Justin Martyr said, by the way, in the, one of the earliest Christian fathers, he said, uh, in our faith tradition, we don't delight in the deaths of any people, even the unjust. Right. And I, and I agree with that, but then I wonder what, and I don't want to find out, but what if the person that was being killed in front of me was someone who killed someone I know, like literally like, and, and then I ha- I can't fathom whether that is something that is going to still be in me or not. So I, I, I don't know. I think that, um, I think the, think, the think, think how, think before you move on from that, that, that example, sorry to cut you off like 12 times already in this conversation, <laughs> thinking about the way that that image of Saddam Hussein played into the story of America and America, what it tells itself is a powerful thing. Agreed. Yes. hundred percent. And so all of that is, um, invisible to us when we just come to the photograph, you know, but it's still operating in the background. But without the photograph, would we have gotten a glimpse, that kind of glimpse into the psyche of our country? And without those images for us, like, are there certain images that we, that again, they trigger something in us that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. And not to say that that's a justification either, because again, I think well, that's why we have memorials, things. memorials and like a Holocaust memorials and stuff like that is one of the worst things about suffering is isolation. Like the world's obliterated, right? And you're alone. And um, being forgotten is worse than like for some people in their own self-reporting is worse than going through all of the things that happened, torture, loss, hmm. death of family, stuff like that. Um, That's an interesting point. I, I just watched Coco. I don't know if you've seen that movie or not. No, um, it is wonderful, very powerful. But the whole central uh, like metaphor theme of that movie is that idea of being forgotten is that, you know, it's based off the, the, um, the Diodos, those motos in uh, mm-hmm. specifically the the way that they celebrate it in the the Oaxacan area is what they base the film off of, and the whole premise is like you die, but you have a second death when you are forgotten. So the idea of photos being alive, or, or photos keeping you alive in the afterlife, and it was just this fascinating idea of being forgotten because I think that that element that you mentioned is part of why, or at least the motivation why we choose to record, why we choose to even have the images in the first place. So there's like that. There's that journey that the, the the image has, the actual event, the recording of the event, why the event was recorded, the distributing of the event, why was the event distributed, and then the watching of the event, why am I watching the event in the first place? Right. And then the one step further, language lifts all of that even further into, like, reality. So for, for me, uh, it's giving people the chance to tell their stories. It's one thing to see a you know a picture or a video of a shooting. It's another to listen to the people who were there explain their story. Because when you're able to talk about your pain, you project yourself into the world and your pain lessens. Remember that like inverse relationship? When you're in pain, your body's everything. The world decreases. If you can put out there your experience and speak it or say something, it actually lessens that divide where your body is everything and your pain is everything. It actually has a healing effect. So Amnesty International talking to, to, um, 
torture victims and publishing stories, that's healing for those people. And that is like bridging the gap between us and their pain, which is not as important as going through the process of healing and right. giving space to people On to do that. Level. And I think that that's um, an important aspect. Level. That book I talked about earlier, The Body Keeps the Score, one of the main elements that it talks about in terms of finding healing from those traumatic moments. Now, obviously, there's a difference between putting your story out there to a collective nation of people that you mostly don't know. And then the next level and more healing part of that is having a, a community and, and relationships that are helping you through that trauma. But one of the basis of the book, The Body Keeps the Score, is the idea that healing must happen in the context of relationship. And part of that relationship is sharing, is putting yeah. it out there. Yeah. So language is massively important. Um, okay. So side note, Brene Brown, she writes a lot of stuff on vulnerability and is pretty well known. She posted something when there was uh, some sort of traumatic event in the last year, and she had a couple steps of things that you should do. One of her steps, which I found interesting, is um, step away from social. This is what she said: step away from social media coverage and toward real people for support, action, conversation, and being with each other in collective pain. Keep informed, but don't stay glued. Our secondary trauma will not make us better helpers. It shuts us down and sends us into self-protection and blame finding. Really good. And that's a practical way of saying some of the stuff that I think Sontag and Elaine Scari get into is that um, what does consuming media do to us and how does it used by rather nefarious entities and structures? I, I, I think on the personal level, so secondary trauma, or um, they call it vicarious trauma, is when someone's helping someone and they get PTSD from their helping experience. Totally documented. It's a real thing. It's something that I shouldn't even say that. Like, it's not a real thing. Um, well, there's a large contingency of people that <laughs> that say that those things are not real things. There's a large contingency of people want... that still say that PSD is not a thing. So, right. I don't even want to give those people like the time of day or voice, you know, and uh, but they're all vo- they're voices that are in our lives. Like we're exposed yeah, to them, especially are. in our context yeah. of ex evangelicals. Yeah. And, or, and, you know, you hear it all the time, snowflakes and safe spaces. You got to go find a counselor, blah, blah, blah. Like that's thinking that belongs in the, in the dark ages, you know? Absolutely. I, I don't mean to say that. I guess I say that very dismissively, but like, yeah, there is a lot of good and toughening yourself up and, and reacting to life in such a way that makes you stronger and, the, the problem is a lot of that is illusory. If you don't take care of these problems, like that stress actually affects you later on in life, whether you think about it or not. Oh, it stays and with so, you the whole time. And there's no acknowledgement does. that that idea of, you know, the pre safe space, pre quote unquote snowflake era isn't the reason that we're in this place that we are in the first right. place. Yeah. Okay. That's true. That's a good way to put it. Like we're, we're here because of that kind of thinking. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, um, so Watching this stuff over and over doesn't make us better helpers. I think, I think personally, I started before I read these books, even now, I think it's important that this documentation exists, that there gives the people who suffer an ability to speak their stories, to share their stories is just massively important because the only thing worse is suffering in silence. Oh, this, this was the thing. Okay. I was saying language is important, right? Uh, stories are important. This is what I was kind of getting at earlier. There are fictional stories and real stories of small scraps of language floating off by themselves, disconnected from all context, 
giving people strength and healing, right? There's nothing worse in your tor- – you're being tortured. There's nothing worse in your situation than the complete isolation that it is. There is nobody else that is there to see your pain except for people that are causing it and are disconnected from it in every single way. Um, and there's no way to speak your pain to anyone because you're not allowed to talk to other people. The isolation is incredible. And so, you know, there's a story of a matchbox with a scrap of paper inside of it that wrote, has the word coraggio in it have have courage take courage that's written by someone else and to them that's more important than bread like that's that's the thing that connects them to the world that's disappearing right that extends their body out extends themselves out from their current situation and so it is not a small thing to say that storytelling that Brene Brown saying uh go toward real people for support action conversation and in collective pain that has to happen. That's where healing begins. It's not the only thing, but it is one of the main things that we have to do is we have to be able to give story to that pain to be able to get it out from us and to even, you know, make the circuitry of empathy happen. Well, and I th- I, I want to go back to what you the quote that you gave um, about empathy in social media. I think if you're a listener of the show for a long time, you know that especially Alan and I were very much advocates for the benefits of social media. We're not, you know, the type of people that will say it's all bad. It's disconnecting us from everything and all that kind of stuff, because it is a platform to people who are going through whatever suffering to lend their voice to. But I think that the flip side of that, and I think it probably where this conversation is landing as far as our own personal reaction to the topics that we're bringing up is having some kind of discipline or method in the ways that we approach social media and the way that we approach the images that are out there that are expressing people's pain and suffering in ways that, you know, are that invoke something in us. And I think that that's, that's an important thing is that we, we can have just like any relationship with any kind of medium, we can have a healthy way to approach it and an unhealthy way to approach it. And I think that keeping in mind our own shortcomings and our own things and biases that we have should inform the way that we approach these images, the way that we approach social media. And it should, it should in the perfect world, I guess, move us into new ways of being and thinking. Yes, absolutely. To question our prejudices, but it doesn't, it just doesn't. The nature of this imagery does not do that unless we're equipped with the tools to allow it to do that. For instance, you look at pictures of people of color being hung earlier in this century, right? And it evokes really strong, like, wow, you're just hanging innocent people without judge or jury, right? That's that's so messed up. And for a lot of us, we will have a, a negative reaction toward that. You look at pictures of bombed out Hiroshima and you're like, does it do the same thing for you? You know, all of these buildings that are destroyed and stuff, does it call you into question the people perpetrating that violence. Does it of alone course. though? That's the thing for me is does it alone? Like if those images are paired with other things that you've done to understand that situation, whether it's through, through reading or through personal stories that you've had connected to that person. I think that it, the, the problem also is that we can't approach just one avenue of media or information right. in order to, to bolster that, that in us. And I think that maybe that's part of the problem. Yeah. Too. Uh, yeah, of course you, you can't just rely on that for sure. But I think that for me, I want to be the kind of person who views stuff like that and it moves me in a genuine direction and it changes me and not just reifies who I am, who I think I am. I look at those pictures of, of lynchings and stuff and I'm like, Oh, I'm not those white people laughing in the background. There's a lot of it, pictures of stuff like that. All of us in the United States, 
every single person on every side of the political spectrum will look at those pictures and be like, oh, that's not me. Right. I'm not a racist. I'm not this. I'm not that. I wish that initial step in feeling would be conveyed to things like indiscriminate bombing of innocent people. Like, wow, I'm not that kind of an American. I'm not the kind of an American that would bomb a country indiscriminately and kill that, you know, millions of people. It's like, or hundreds of thousands of people. Um, that's just the elementary step, right? The next step is like, well, why am I feeling like I have to be this righteous person who could never be like that? Why can't I actually dissect some of my own prejudices and stuff? But, um, well, we're just inherently bad at critical self-reflection. And I think that if we do not address that and find ways to really be critically self-reflective, then I think when we're talking about this idea of like media images and all that kind of stuff, then we're automatically going to approach it in a way where we're going to be moved but not necessarily moved in the right direction. Right. And we're going to be even further disconnected because that's step one. Dude, the point is to actually get to someone else's experience. The point is to hear that person's experience, understand it as best we can, and be a part of the alleviating of that of that pain. That's kind of the point of all this stuff. And if you can't start with critical self-reflection, you'll never get there. We never will. The first step for me in doing this stuff is I – have to let go of my need to be right. If I go into any situation where I'm talking to someone, whether it's counseling them through their pain, I go into it being like, I don't need to be right. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to be like, you have to be completely secure and okay with not having all the answers, with not being right, with actually coming to the table to listen, right? Before we can even interact with some of this stuff. But that's just step one. I mean, moving beyond that is is work, and art. Empathy is not easy. It's a muscle that and, needs to be exercised. Yeah. And not just this stuff is not just a mirror for us. Us as a public listening to people telling their stories is a mirror for them. And that's very important. Not for us to inject our own agenda as much as possible, but to hear it on their own terms. And we're really friggin' bad at that. Like we, we spect spectacleize everything and which is the make it the, the importance of media representation. Like, you know, when we talk about, you know, certain races and genders not being represented in media and in, in, in the stories that we tell in our culture, that does have Dude, profound effect. I'm going to get so upset. Well, <laughs> I can't, but I think it's I connected. Ben Shapiro. I watched a, a, Ben Shapiro video where his whole video is him criticizing people about being happy about Black Panther. Oh my gosh. And his whole movie is uh, his whole video is like, you know, basically you weren't happy and excited about being liberated from slavery. I saw you that. Happy was... and excited about. I'm like, what? First of all, what the, what kind of, why would you even film something like that? Like, what's the, the point of making a video like that? See, even my dog's upset. What's the point of making a video like that? Other than just to show your outright racism, it's awful. Right. But I think anyway. it, it highlights the importance of this whole conversation highlights the importance of representation because those images and those stories are not going to be told on the news. We can't rely on a place where people can have the forum and the, just to in plain words, black and white, say, here's my story. Here's the narrative part of it. Like it has to be reflected, especially when we're dealing with pain and trauma. Sometimes we need the, the avenue of art so that it can't, we don't have to express it directly, but we can express it through, through character, through narrative, through image, through all this kind of stuff. And it's important in our exercise, in our discipline of empathy to have avenues where we are experiencing other stories that are not ours 
and seeking to understand in the midst of them. Talking about these events and talking about what we've seen and heard and experienced is important for us as a public. Like it's no small thing to sit down with real people and to talk about this stuff and to provide spaces for healing and processing because there, there is, you know, collective pain. Right. As Brene Brown but talks I, but about. But I think we try to do that on a national level and we don't do we, I don't know if we can. I don't know if it's possible to have that, well, you know, moment. Fifty million people. <laughs> exactly, especially with with in light of recent tragedies in Florida, it's you. You can't do that. You have to like it has to be that community doing that together, and then the rest of the country. We have to have a different conversation, a different way to approach it, because it's a different level of pain and trauma that we're experiencing being separated from it, and we just haven't. We haven't or maybe never be able to figure that out, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and get better and find varying degrees of and platforms in which we can have people come and and, and where we can have people come and express those things in ways that are healthy. And I think that that's part of the motivation behind the whole idea of safe spaces that have happened recently. And I think that that's a good thing and to yes. to discount them and to take maybe a few because we we all know personalities like this that will gleam on to someone else's tragedy in order for them to to have attention and that element is true in any tragedy that happens in our country or our community but that shouldn't negate the fact that we still need spaces where people can feel uh, validated and that they're still connected to the larger world through their tragedy because like you said before their world has become so small and so hostile yes. because of that event yeah, and it allows them to externalize the pain and to yes. project themselves back out into the world. And God forgives, forgive us if we tell other people they're not allowed to project themselves out into the world, especially people in pain. Right, and how much how much more true is that for collective pain, communities that face generations of pain and oppression? That is that's not something that can be turned around with, you know, a community meeting that takes structural change in order to have those things happen. So I think that when we talk about pain and we talk about trauma, we have to first understand the depths of pain, even though we ourselves cannot experience it because we have the privilege. We have, that's exactly what it is. We have the privilege yeah. to be able to look at a painful situation rationally and look at it without the lens and the emotions of the people who actually experienced it. And yeah, your, your world's still intact in a really big way. It is. So instead of using that perspective of privilege to discount the people that are in pain, we have the opportunity to connect with those people in pain and be a place and an outside voice when that person or that community is ready to then begin to reconnect their their rational thought and their emotions with whatever tragedy or pain that they've experienced. It, it, everyone can collectively do something, but we forget that timing is just as much as important as the words and the things that we do. Timing. Yeah, man. I, it's hard to think about this topic without thinking about like my pastoral role and even people in my family who have dealt with chronic traumatic pain. If you have chronic pain, that's really bad. It changes your whole life and it changes your relationships and people um, people have a hard time adjusting to that. I have friends who went through stuff like uh, trigeminal neuralgia in their face where they have a twitch in their face and it like destroys all their relationships because it causes all these migraines and stuff and people cannot relate to to the, the kind of level of pain that that person's in. Or you watch Golden Girls and you see like there's an episode where one of the Golden Girls, um, you know, these three older ladies who live together, I'm sure everyone listening to this probably knows something about it goes to the doctor and has this undiagnosed pain 
and the doctor doesn't believe them anymore. And it's like, hey, you should get a haircut or something. They they basically try to explain away using psychological terms or something or in so many ways discount that person's pain. So it happens on an institutional level. It happens uh, on the person-to-person level. And I honestly believe that if we were a culture who gave space to each other to listen to each other's pain, to validate at least the fact that we're feeling that way, maybe not even agree with all the particulars, but just to be there as a good mirror, less shootings would happen in the first place. And I mean, isolation is a massive part of what all this is about. Yes. I think that, um, watching a video of kids being shot in a school should, should lead us to experiment with all kinds of ways of lessening the chances of that ever happening again. And it should move us in that direction. And I personally believe legislation that we've already talked about this a billion times. I think that most Americans agree, like 80% agree on certain elements of common sense gun reform. That's just not getting passed. But the, the isolation part, dude, you're, your wife, and I was going to get super personal right now, once told me it was a shame that we felt like we had to drink to be able to get connect with other people. That we just didn't grow up in a society where people were super into – not super – where people were unguarded and open toward each other. You know That we just didn't have that, that kind of support structure and system. I'm so tired of, of people like Donald Trump saying – why didn't anyone notify the the police? There's all these signs. Why didn't someone step in? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's not just notifying the police. It's stepping in to be present in a person's life, you know, in a constructive way. And like, I, I, I feel like we as a society could do a, a lot better at that. And anybody who chooses the path of empathy and mirroring other people and giving language to pain and listening, you're doing the goddamn work of healing. You know, you're doing the good work and it matters even if it's one person, make it two, make it three. Like you, you can change big things with small actions and that small action being a more open society that's willing to listen to each other. That's where all of our like chips should be in, you know? Right. And I think that the recent events in Florida with the school shooting are only hammer home this idea that we've been talking about that these image these images that we're seeing on a regular basis the stories that we're hearing from this place have only served to solidify people in the stances that they had before this happened yes entrenched us and increased the division because by their own nature we have to recognize that they do not move us on their own unless we allow them to unless we've created a way and been mindful of how we're approaching those things. And, and it sounds like we're saying over and over, it, it takes story to do that. It takes narrative to do that and the time and space to be able to hear it. And if we have a leader who refuses to hear the opinions or thoughts of anyone else, then anyway, that's a side note. We're obviously so Are we talking s- about church or the country. Well, <laughs> yeah. are we talking about Christianity and the experiences of regular people? Or are we talking, <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, oh I don't gosh. get me started. Sometimes I have a hard time not personifying the church as Trump. So, but that's, <laughs> that's my side view. Maybe I'll cut that out. Um, <laughs> you got work to do. <laughs> oh, I know I do. I do. We all do. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that what, 
I, I, I think we're going to talk. I think we'll, I, I'm going to have a follow up episode at some point or maybe even just me talking because there's still more to think about in my mind about suffering, the portrayal of suffering and the consuming of it. Like this is just the beginning of a topic, you know, like, we're, yeah, for sure. It's important for all of us. I'm interested to know how other people are dealing with looking at violent imagery. So if you want to leave a comment. Yeah, please go do to our website. Go to go to our website. Add your voice or to this Facebook. conversation. Uh, you can do it directly on the show notes at irenacast.com slash one twelve. That's one one two. Also in the show notes, you'll find the links to all the other places you can like, follow, and contact the show. Uh, so if you want to hit us up on our Facebook page or Twitter or just email us directly, uh, you can find all that information on our website and on the show notes at irenacast.com slash one one two. Or depending upon what podcast app you're listening on, the show notes might be a clickable link might be right there in front of you on your on your phone. So. Yeah, we'd really like to hear from you on this particular area, not only your personal stories, but kind of branches of conversation that we can take from this main conversation and and make into an episode and and continue and expand uh, the conversation in certain ways. So, um, so yeah, we would love, we always love to hear from you. We're just so thankful for the last, I think the last, since we've come back from our hiatus, we've had so many great and wonderful people like reaching out to us and sending us emails. And it has been, uh, it's been invigorating. It's been wonderful to, to experience and hear from people that have been listening. And, uh, uh we really do. We're, we're appreciative. This of podcast it. Thank you. Has always been self-serving for me. And I know for you and for all of us, <laughs> like, it's just a platform to start processing some of the stuff that that we're going through and kind of marking where we're where we're headed at the same time and processing together. So anytime someone responds, it's like you're adding to my life and I'm I appreciate it for entirely selfish reasons. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. So um so on the other side of the music, we're gonna be doing our brand new segment called Your Fundy is showing. <laughs> So clearly this podcast is all about our move away from religious fundamentalism. We've moved away from a, a, a narrow view in our evangelical upbringing, and we're trying to open up the space. However, we recognize that we are layered people. We are layered individuals that have nuance and complexity, and there are areas in our life that we still approach in a fundamental way where we are we are rigid, we are concise, and we have very little wiggle room for change. And we just thought this would be a fun segment. Uh, there's a, a saying that's happened in our, our family and relationship as we go on um, that's been told to both of us in some way, shape, or form because we have various areas that we're really nerdy in. And someone would always say when we got a little bit too far beyond, they would say, your nerd is showing. So we just thought that would be a good saying to bring into this about our fundy is showing, <laughs> our fundamentalist is showing. And uh, so, yeah. So, so Alan, let's start with you. What what would you say that you still very much are a fundamentalist in? And I, I thought, okay, so I, <clears throat> when I originally talked about this segment with you, I was thinking of actual ways I'm still religiously a fundamentalist <laughs> because there are those areas of my faith where I still feel like that sometimes. And the thing that first came to mind um, I know this is actually about religion, so it's not according to this segment, but you know, it's what came to mind. Um, I'll have conversations with people and like, I'll say things that sound super pretentious about the Bible, like super pretentious. And I feel like everything has to have biblical grounding. And so like preaching and stuff, preaching is great, but like there, for me, there's this impulse 
to be quote unquote biblical. And I'll always laugh at that word. I'll always look at some, oh, oh, you're not being biblical. Even this last week, I had people on Facebook tell me like, aren't you a pastor? That's not biblical. You know, like all, all kinds of stuff on, on comments and stuff. And uh, it's a funny word, but it's deep down somewhere in my heart. <laughs> so <laughs> so your instinct is no matter what good thing or biblical thing I may say, in your mind, you when I get to the end of that, you will think in your mind you should have put a verse on it. Right? No, it's it's more like yeah, maybe a little, but it's more like how people talk about the Bible. Like I'm in a space where I know intellectually that like um, the way we use texts is very different than what I was taught. You know, like everybody is interpreting. Everybody is even the people in the Bible themselves are interpreting older texts a certain way. But still, when I hear people talk about the Bible, I'm like, no. Like, you don't have a right to use it that way. <laughs> I think that's come out There's, a little bit in the in some of our past Bible episodes. And I'm working through it. I'm working through it. But, you know, I still – my fundy shows every once in a while. And uh, I get all excited. My nerd shows way more often than my fundy does, though. Way more often. Really? I would say that for me, it's about equal. Like I'm a big nerd about things, but because I get to be so nerdy about certain things and I feel like I've gained a certain amount of knowledge, I also gain a little bit of, you know, uh, pretentiousness with those things that I've gained so much knowledge yeah. about and a certain you way. S- you said offline. You said offline that my, not to, God, I cut you off like a hundred times. Oh my gosh. Um, you, you said offline that I would probably say something about the gym or whatever. Cause I mean, I've been going twice a day, man. I've been waking up before nine o'clock and running like five K's and stuff a couple times a week and then working out in the evening. I feel like I'm dying. <laughs> and, uh, yes, I've learned a lot over the last couple of years how to use machines and stuff like that. And so when I see people using certain machines in the gym in unorthodox fashion, it bothers me a little bit. I want to go over there and take out the manual and show them, like, this is the way that it has to be done for all people everywhere. You don't have a right to, like, hump the lap pull lap pull down bar because that's not what that's for. You know, <laughs> like, when you're pulling it down, <laughs> you're, like, moving your hips at the same time. Like, there's videos of stuff like that, but I see it in the gym all the time. And uh, I don't ever want to criticize someone for the way that they're working out. But every once in a while... Like, especially if the person is a very big presence, you know, like the way that they act and, and, and are gaining attention and stuff. And then they start using a machine in a certain way. I, f- I feel like my fundy slips a little. See, when, when I, I don't say anything, the reason I mention that is because since I've known you, you'd had, you've had various seasons of like intense commitment to the gym. Like it is, it is an unwavering commitment when you're in that zone. Like, oh, this person from out of town that we haven't seen in like a decade is going to be here and they're only going to be here from 12 to two. You'd be like, I, I got to go to the gym. <laughs> yeah, I am right there right now. <laughs> <laughs> like everything years, gets put on hold. Hey, it's been that way for two years now. One of my favorite little memes is like, you don't exist. I'm go- I'm going to the gym. None of you exist. Because I realize like, if I- dude, I don't take care of myself. I just don't. I take care of everyone else in my life and in my job constantly. And it's the one GD thing that I give myself that actually makes a better difference in my life. So it's holy. I- and I think that it's it's because you find comfort in a certain measure of fundamentalism. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Dude, I think about my fundamentalist past with nostalgia 
all the time. Then I go home and I go to church and it's totally destroyed. But like I I think about the simpler days when there was a way of doing things and you got a result from doing those things. And it was always the same way. <laughs> and you can wake up and the world made sense, you know, like every single time. <laughs> so comforting. Oh, I love it. Wow, that's bad. So uh, there's my fundy just slipped. There Your you go. Fundy. Your fundy showing, Alan. <laughs> so what's so what's your your fundy wear? If I'm being 100 percent honest, I am much more fundamentalist in so many areas of my life that I am progressive and open. And I think more than anything, I am a space fundamentalist. Not like outer space, but like my like space feng shui. Uh, yeah, like the the work, the space that I work in. The, the, just the spaces, there's certain spaces in the house where I just, I have that. And it, it, it's problematic because my wife is the opposite. Very little regard for space. It's just something that you use. But for me, it's something that I live in and that affects everything. So I get, I get overly protective. Fortunately, she cares so little about it that she doesn't mind, which is one of the many reasons I love no, her. She's a nice person. She doesn't, she doesn't <laughs> mind so much because it's not as important to her. Cause you know, I, I, figure out which way the furniture is going to be. I'm the one that puts things away in the kitchen. And my mother-in-law comes uh, every week to, to be with the girls and she cooks us dinner and she's very great. But she complains because every about three or four months, I will just rearrange everything in the kitchen to <laughs> to a new place because, well, this is more functional if I have this in here because it's it's on the whims of, of where – of my current way in which I move about the kitchen. So she'll go to get something and it'll be gone. And it's just it's just space. Like I just feel like – I'm more productive when I can control the space that I'm in to every particular way. And uh, I'm, I'm, there, I'm that way with like our, our bedroom, our living room, our kitchen. Like I have, I have determined and I have the hardest time. One thing that I'm realizing is I'm having the hardest time as a father being okay with allowing my girls to have like, cause their room was a mess and not that I care necessarily that it's a mess, but it just doesn't make any sense. And I'm, I'm imposing this fundamentalism on my beautiful, wonderful daughters who are, who are four and a half years old that don't have any sense of like organization and usefulness <laughs> and efficiency. And I'm trying so hard in my heart and my mind to just let it go. And just sit I down and be like, do you not realize that this is not the way that it's supposed to be? It's that is so not hard. supposed to be here. <laughs> One of my daughters, it it's it's a little bit easier because I can see her tendencies and she's much more like me where she she'll tell my other daughter, "No, it's not supposed to go there. It goes here. Or it's supposed to be this way." And I relate so much with her when she has those moments of, "Don't mess with my space." Um but I I'm laugh very at that so much. I'm sorry. And that, to me that feels like I'm the kind of person who laughs at people who do that. You know, I'll move something an inch and just to like, <laughs> like people who can't move anything and it has to be the way that to me is like, how can you live like that? I don't know. That's not, that's not what's important. You know, it takes all kinds of people though, Jeff. It is. It takes some, but some I think it's vitally important. To <laughs> it does. I'm totally, I'm a space fundamentalist. No question about it 100%. And I, I don't think I've even gotten better in my old age. I've gotten worse. My wonderful wife and You're my kids so far are extremely patient with me. The lawn's not for walking on. <laughs> oh, I'm so going to be that guy. <laughs> and if I don't verbalize it, it's certainly going to be something that my heart cries out to my mind and creates a <laughs> visceral response. You see, Jeff, you're extending yourself out into the world by creating it just the way you want it to be. 
That's your self. And and if you can't do that, you're going to lose the ability to be in the world and you no longer get to own part of the world. That's right. what it is. Well, it's honestly, it's very confusing to me. Like, cause I, I'm hold so tightly to like the way that my space it needs to be organized. I have a, a picture on my Instagram. My, my wife recently started a, a business and we have a shared working space now. It has been a trial for me to like remind myself. No, we we agree this is a share space, uh, and a I, trial. <laughs> it it really has. Like I I don't like I'm not overemphasizing this for like dramatic effect. It really is something that I'm just constantly like ah. And my wife has allowed me to do so much when it comes to this stuff that I keep having to tell myself, "Would you knock it off, you big dingleberry? Like just allow it to be." And I. Man, I struggle probably more more with this like aspect of my personality than I did with like lust and masturbation as an adolescent. <laughs> like it is so entrenched into who I am, and I know where it comes from because it, I grew up in a very yeah. like filthy environment, chaotic um, environment. Yeah. So, but I just man, I'm really it's it's really heightened now that the girls are old enough and they're they're expressing their agency, and I I see that. Uh, I'm alone in the world of my home when it comes to like organization and stuff like that. Uh, so that at least you're not interrupting them and being like, that's not how you stack the blocks. You do it like this. <laughs> okay. I've caught myself moving in that direction a couple of times, but again, okay. So I'm, I'm a space fundamentalist. That's, that's where I still hold on to my, uh, my tendency towards fundamentalism, uh, and I'm which still is still a biblical fundamentalist, right? Which is a beautiful thing that we can be so layered because in my, my spiritual life, like if you've listened to these episodes as we've gone through this whole thing, like I can hold my image of God and the Bible very loosely and be like, Hey, it's okay. Like, it's okay to have no answers, but you translate that like happy go lucky, like ability to, to, <laughs> to the way your bedroom set up. I can't do it. <laughs> it's okay to hold mystery and, you know, not have answers and, Things not have a place to go. That's it, okay. It is. It is okay in my heart and my mind, but it is not okay in my house. <laughs> oh, it's so. I'm such a divided person. Right on. Well, I think that'll do it for us this week. Uh, Alan, how can people find out what you have going on on interwebs? I say this every time, but Facebook is really the place. That's where I get into conversations with people. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, people have started following, and if you hear this. Feel free to send me a Facebook friend request. I may not answer it, but if you do, you'll be able to follow kind of what goes on in the conversations I'm having. You can also find me on Goodreads, Instagram. I post some fun stuff every once in a while. And then, of course, my website where I'm um, not just the the podcast site, but the uh, blog I started where I'm working out every single day and doing the vegan thing. Still vegan, Jeff. Still 100% vegan. February, mid-February. Another and, area of fundamentalism. Oh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, I, I'm not necessarily a fundamentalist. I, and I even say that on the website. I'm like, hey, if I'm choosing between death and eating an animal, I'll start at the lowest point on the food chain. I'm not a radical. I'll work my way up. You know, I may not kill someone else and eat them. That may be where I draw the line. Maybe I'll do an alive thing where they're frozen already and eat part of their body. That's totally fine. But if I don't have to, then I won't, you know, I'm not a fundamentalist, but I am getting a lot healthier, losing weight, seeing how it's changing me. And so I write funny little blurbs at least once a month on mudbeforeblood.wordpress.com. Sounds good. 
And you can follow me on all the socials at Jeff Manildi and listen on the second and fourth Thursday to my other podcast, Divine Cinema, where we review, analyze, critique, and oftentimes mourn the portrayal of faith in movies. And uh, you can find all the information that we just talked about in our show notes at irenacast.com slash 112 or any of the show notes to any of our episodes. All that information is there. Uh, as for Irenacast, the show, if you enjoy what you hear, recommend us to a friend or leave a rating and review on whatever platform you are listening on. We would really appreciate it. Or you can take your support of the show to the next level. Consider going to irenacast.com slash Amazon before you make your next purchase and just shop as usual. By using that link, we'll receive a small percentage of your purchase without any extra cost to you. That'll help us a little bit in covering some of the costs associated with running the podcast. That's irenacast.com slash Amazon. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. 